you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How do we create young adults that do not come back to live in our basements? What is the role of parents in creating opportunities for their children? And how important is it to hold children accountable for their decisions? Today's podcast will shed light on these questions. Hey there, Innovation Nation. Today's show is both profound and practical. If you have been wondering, how in the world can I get my kids to become independent thinkers, to take action on their own without being micromanaged, you have tuned in to the right episode. As parents and educators, we are often plagued with an unwillingness of children to think for themselves or else to take responsibility for their thinking and actions. You will hear today's guest relate conversations he has had with his own children, saying things like, we can expand your horizons, we will be there to support you, but you have to take responsibility for your own choices. It can be a tricky thing as an adult responsible for children to say on the one hand, I can help you do that better, easier, faster, while on the other hand saying, you'll have to figure that out on your own. Which decisions do we encourage children to make on their own? And which ones do we help them navigate? This delicate balance between fostering independence and opening the door to opportunity takes practice to perfect. If we don't give children enough rope, they never get the opportunity to make the necessary mistakes to learn complex tasks. On the other hand, if we intervene or help them too much, they may miss grand opportunities to take giant steps forward. This tension between you should try that on your own and here, can I show you a different way? Is precisely the experience we strive to create in the Inventors Bootcamp. Cassie was a student in one of our boot camps last summer. At first, she stood back while one of the other members of her group did all the computer programming. And to be fair, she wasn't particularly interested in programming. But then the other team member had some extenuating circumstances and couldn't show up to finish the project. Suddenly, Cassie needed to learn the coding for their group's project to succeed. And she stepped up to the challenge because we didn't rush in to solve her problem. At other times, students may be facing a challenge for which they have no framework. In these moments, we introduce the basic concepts, help them get their feet wet, and then step back to see how far they can run on their own. We're always amazed at what students can do on their own. To get your students connected this summer, visit InventingZone.com and declare your child's independence. Our guest today is an expert on the subject of independent thinking and student choices in education. Yang Zhao started his educational career in the unlikeliest of places, the Sichuan province in China, in the home of a poor peasant farmer. Let's follow his journey to independent thinking to find clues for our own children. So my guest today is Dr. Yang Zhao. 
Dr. Zhao is a professor of education at the University of Oregon, and when I asked him what he felt like his major accomplishment in life was, he said that uh, he was very happy that he made it to 50 years old, and I, I think that's a good accomplishment. He also describes himself as an unsuccessful Chinese farmer. So tell us a little more about that. What do you mean by an unsuccessful Chinese farmer? Well, uh, I think both uh, in, in terms of being you know, 50 year old is related because I was born in a small, tiny farming village in Sichuan province. And for those who do not know Sichuan as a province, you know, the Sichuan spicy food is come from that province. And uh, when I was growing up, actually in 1960s, I was born in 1965, and many, uh, the, the infant mortality was very high in, in the village. I remember I know, half of the kids died before the age three, I think, uh, you know, at least that's the case in my family and many other families. So I said I was pretty happy. You know, I was. I think the story was like that. Uh, I was put outside uh, because I was sick, and luckily my aunt came to visit and brought me back home and uh, nourished me back to life. And uh, so that was, uh, you know, then we got through, you know, starvation, farming, all the famine, all those kind of things. Uh, it was a tough time, and uh, so I'm happy that I'm almost uh, 15 a couple of uh, months and that was a big accomplishment and another thing is that as an unsuccessful Chinese farmer because I was born to be a farmer to farm and uh, but I was uh, never really uh, good at farming and uh, so I choose to uh, like school and I kind of did schooling so uh, I'm glad my father did not try very hard to make me a, a farmer I was not interested and I was really not good at it in that case that's really you know uh, helps me to think about what education means, you know, do we want to make someone to do things they're not interested in and not good at and turn them into a mediocre, possibly farmer, or do we give them opportunities to be themselves and succeed in other ways? So what opportunities did you have early on then? It sounds like your father was somewhat open-minded to that idea, so was that something that ran in the family, or he tried very hard for many years to get you to do things and finally decided it was too much work and you went off in your own path? How did that happen? I'm not sure about that. I, I should go back and ask him. I'll be back to visit him. He's nearly 90, and I should go ask him. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Steve, that he is, uh, I think, uh, illiterate. At best, semi-literate. I've never seen him, I've seen him reading stuff, but he's always uh, himself quite a risk taker and out of the box playing kind of farmer and he uh, is a self learner did a lot of things from the the wisest man I've ever known in my village of course that's your own father and but I think they uh it is that around 1972 I think during that's during the culture of Russian China I think people uh, Mao you know that's Chairman Mao who was the uh, the leader of China decided to restore education so he was uh, building uh, schools in the villages, uh, hoping that all the children would uh, go to school. I, I think my father did not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, I think he was kind of ambivalent, but he was supportive. So he said, I was not very helpful. You know, I was I was from around seven year old, and then I went to school. I think six, seven. I think at that time, and uh, so I went to another village for school, and the school is very much like you know uh, a one room schoolhouse, one teacher and uh, for everybody, one teacher for everything. I mean, there was no art room, no music, no uh, uh, sports, and uh, we just a bunch of kids of varying ages hang out together uh, as a place. And I uh, kind of quite like that, developed, uh, I found that's an alternative space, that's where I can feel good, because I was interested in reading and doing more of the thinking work. I think I found my 
my niche, so to speak. However, that I should point out, unlike education today in China at that time, there was no clear pathway to succeed, so-called. I think today many parents believe that start kindergarten on, we're planning them to be ready for something, you know, because we see kindergarten, elementary school, you know, private school, afterwards go to great Ivy League colleges, become great professionals. And it wasn't like that. It was just for me because at that, 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 that time, universities were actually dismantled by, by my mouth. And there was no, no one says that, yes, you go and then you will do this. You get out of the village. That wasn't, it was more of an alternative space. But my father did tell me that there's one thing in life that no one can take away from you. It's your wisdom and it's your knowledge. I thought that was very helpful. So were there quite a few schools around that you had the opportunity or villagers around you had the opportunity to go to? Or was this something that was uncommon? No, it was quite uncommon. You remember, they, uh, it's a state-controlled system, so there's, they plan everything. They said they put school in one village, and kids from uh, villages surrounding that would go to this the place. That's only one place. I remember, it's, I mean, it's hardly not school. It's just a place. There's one adult who probably knew slightly more than others, and uh, we just get together. There was no library. I mean, for a few years, we didn't really have textbooks or anything like that. And uh, because, the, you know, the, again, the huge economical problems in China in the, during Cultural Revolution, a lot of times the teacher just made up a lot of the learning content. And uh, I remember we learned uh, the first set of Chinese language, uh, really, was from Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, you know, for a long time. So did you guys do project-based learning? Did you get together and teach each other? Did you do a lot of drilling? Like, what was the experience like? Well, the experience was quite interesting. And of course, I'm trying to remember many years ago. And what I thought was quite <laughs> interesting, it's a lot of things that's grounded actually in the village life. For example, I remember clearly every day, you know, when we go to school, we would really take some grass to hand to the teacher that is used to feed the communes, uh, water buffaloes, stuff like that. And uh, it's definitely a lot of peer teaching uh, because, again, we have a multi-aged, you know, cross-age grouping. And so, yeah, I remember when teachers address this group, the other group do their homework and they have to self-manage. And, I mean, of course, concept like that, we might have done some project-based learning, but I don't think you know, we had a term like that to describe it. For me, actually, it was, I would say, a blessing in disguise. It's quite good, actually. It's very communal. It's based in a village, and kids hang out and uh, played a lot of games they invented because there was no sports or no video games, no smartphones at that time. So how did the transition occur for you from this village school into what came next and what did come next? Well, that's, again, I think in life, it's a lot of uh, large historical moments can uh, affect individuals a lot. I think it's around 1976 when Mao died and the Cultural Revolution ended. And then Deng Xiaoping, the big leader, came in power in 1977. He began to restore the whole formal education system that was abolished. And so began to say we should have, you know, elementary and middle, high school, and then college. And college, uh, university uh, were open again. And 1977, I was just about five years in, over with the, my elementary school. And we kind of, you know, took a test, but that didn't really matter. I was still focused a lot more on class struggle, you know. And I was born in a very poor family. So poverty was the only credential you need to advance to another level. So I moved to, uh, as with many other of my classmates, moved over to middle school that was really about, you know, another smaller township-like thing, like town center, 
and but farther away. So I was moving over there. And after that, two years there, and took another test. This is a more serious test. I was then advanced to high school, which I think is a ring about, I would see 12, no, I think about 12 kilometers away. That would be nearly 10 miles away. So that would be, that's become boarding. And then I would come home on Saturday after class. And at that time, China ran a six-day-a-week schedule. Then Sunday night, I would walk back, carry my sweet potatoes, food, and for a week. So then I took the infamous now Chinese college entrance exam called Gaokao and passed the test and went to Chongqing. That's a big city. At that time, belonged to Sichuan and began to study English, a major English language teaching. And remember, actually, I was not that good. Uh, my village education was like, so I did not really get into a four-year program. I got into a two-year program, which was like a community college. And the two-year program, somehow China changed into three years. Then after three years, you're allowed to take exam to be able to advance to a four-year program. And this all at that time was more rainy, I think, things that happened during the time. So then I graduated in college, and they think my English is good. At that time, they were leading university college instructors. So my university at Citroën, uh, foreign Language Institute kept me as a faculty member. I graduated in July as a student. Then in September of 1982, I became a professor there teaching English. So that's really the short journey of that. And then after that, I taught English. I began to be interested in psychology, language learning, and then came over to the U.S. with uh, to co-write a book after several years in 1992. Now this is uh, 10 years later, and I think 1991 probably. Uh, 22, I went to Oregon as a business scholar there. At that time, I discovered I should do graduate study. I applied to graduate study, went to University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, uh, got a master's and PhD in a couple of years, and then began working at uh, Michigan State University as a professor. So that's really a very quick way to think about it. I became a professor in 1996. So what caused the interest in the psychology and the language learning? What was it about that that was so alluring to you? Well, it's again something quite interesting. I think in life, again, in China is at that time, there are not many choices. I had always been interested in just whatever opportunity comes along, if I enjoy it, I would do it. Also, I started trying to run away from my weaknesses. That's a major theme in my writing philosophy. Honestly, right now, I try not to do things that you're really not good at. So I went to the university as study English. That was really not my necessarily big strength, but it's better than my math. So I chose to major in English to avoid my math. So now, you know, not all Chinese <laughs> are good at math, you know. I, I was trying to avoid math. And so uh, 1982, that's the last year in China. If you were you choose to major in studying a foreign language, your math score doesn't count. And I never had a good math record. And I, I don't want to blame teachers or others, but that was just not good. And so, but I went by English, it wasn't the best either. So I went to school uh, in a foreign language school, it was supposed to be in English. And one of the things, you know, I, I was not interested. And honestly, I was not interested in reading Shakespeare, reading all the literature. And so I found this collection of really pirated copies of foreign magazines and some books. <laughs> it's, uh, that's 1982. I remember that time, not many. China it was not really a normalized trading, so you won't have access to the books or this stuff. You know. So I, I just began reading. I found them more interesting, just accident. And then uh, once I read them, I began to be interested in the language learning, psychology, pedagogy. 
Then we had, again, international visitors and teachers from the U.S. and other countries. So I was able to carry out a conversation with them that, that's of more substance. You know, they were my teachers than other students in both handling, you know, again, literature or weather. I was able to talk substance, but many of them happened to be, uh, you know, professors of psychology or educational psychology from the U.S. So, so that gives me motivation, gives a sense of enjoyment of success. So, so that's really, I think, again, it's really accidental take advantage of the opportunities I had and trying to run away from what I was not good at. This seems somewhat related to the message that you speak about on a regular basis. So did the message you were carrying, is this something that just sort of arose out of your own experience? I think in my experience has definitely has tremendous impact for me. And it started with that, then you expand into look at research, do the society, look at other data. So I was, I was quite reflective of my own life. And so definitely, I think a lot of people, you know, their own message comes from examining their personal experiences and then back up with the research, expand that. So now that you've taken the opportunity to internalize these messages that seem to have just fortuitously come along, I'm curious about how you have thought about these messages with relation to your own children. Well, I have two children, and uh, so uh, I just came back from uh, my daughter's graduation from high school. So I apply this very well to them, and uh, I think it's the, the most important part is that children have their own learning. I think in many ways I have been a very autonomous learner, an autonomous professional, because really um, from very early on, my parents were not able to guide me, you know, in terms of uh, intellectually or academically. They did not have the social capital to create a good environment for me either. So I kind of took on that. And again, now this is in hindsight. I thought there was a, it's a pretty good thing. So I think a lot of times I would like to create a bigger space, a lot of space for my children. So we always told them, we always will be there to support you, but you have to take responsibility for your own choices, we can expand your horizons. So I've been believing really things like, uh, for example, providing opportunity to children as uh, early as possible to not limit their opportunities. So the opportunities should help them either identify their strength or uncover their weaknesses and help them develop interest in something that they'll be responsible. I think in life, the worst fear I have for anybody and uh, is that uh, in life, you can't find something you actually enjoy doing. And you have to do something and to earn a living, then you find something to kind of enjoy your life. I, I think play and work has been separated too much. For me, I think the first thing, discover interest, pursue interest, hoping that interest can sustain a life. And, and uh, my, my son is actually an art historian, you know, uh, which is very unusual for many Chinese. You know, he went to the University of Chicago and it's happening working now in the arts club in Chicago. My daughter is going to pursue philosophy and English literature in England. So I think that's what they're interested in doing. And uh, so, so, but you need a lot of experience for them to discover uh, their interests. It's very sad if someone does not have interest at any time to sustain their life. Interests, of course, is, should be changing. And can change to be adaptive to fit the context. So I apply the same thing to my own children, but with much more intention and purpose than my father did. So the parents that listen to our podcast have lots of voices speaking to them from the media. And these voices are, well, they had, there's a lot of different messages that come across about education. 
So if we could close the door on those messages just for a second, what would you tell parents are the most important things to encourage in their own children through their education? I think the, the, the strongest message is, as I mentioned, is that children have to be the owners of their own learning, their own life. Again, parents can create and provide opportunities, but we should hold children accountable for their own choices. Uh, but we should not try to force our children along one pathway that we believe is correct, I think. Because, uh, again, uh, societies uh, change a lot. Children's uh, social circles change. And we should also understand our children genuinely want to learn, and they may want to learn something different from what we think is valuable. And uh, children genuinely and generally, if you give them the opportunity to learn to take responsibilities, they would. So I found it amazing that a lot of our parents, try, I mean, people, parents I know of, try to prescribe a pathway for their children. Always say this is, uh, if you do this and it's for your own good, you know, the tiger mom syndrome, we've seen a lot of those situations that we've been very dictatorial to a lot of parents, um, a lot of our children. We, we deprive them of the opportunities uh, to, to make decisions, to take responsibility. And uh, also another major message I would say is uh, do not force your children to, to comply with external standards and judgments, you know, especially when early young. If your child cannot read at kindergarten as well as next door neighbor, I would not worry about that and look hard at your children, look at the hard at what they can do, not what they cannot do. And stop judging children's future as, you know, that you, you'll make more money if you major in STEM, you know, if you do this. I think, you know, uh, that's not really important. And also it doesn't really work when you're early on. When you're six, seven, even 12-year-old, you're not necessarily worried about, you know, life you know, when you're 20. That's so far away. I think for parents, most important thing is to, uh, I think, uh, create opportunity, have them take responsibility, do not prejudge uh, your children. Uh, against other standards or whether they will be useful in the long run. So you said something, you put a juxtaposition together a minute ago, and I want to zoom in on that just a little bit because it's a tricky thing for a parent. You talked about the importance of making sure that our children have choices and opportunities, but you also mentioned that it's important to hold them accountable. Can you put those two things together a little more tightly so we understand maybe as parents how we might do those two things at the same time? Well, I think uh, the simple thing is that uh, people are truly accountable when they accept their responsibility from wholeheartedly. So unless you are given a choice to make a decision about that choice, if something is imposed upon, uh, on the other hand, you will not accept responsibility. You know? So that's, you know, I mean, this came again from my own philosophy and also my experience. Uh, you know, in a democracy, everybody has the chance to vote. So once you voted for a governor or president or your congressman, you, even if you do not like it, you accept it. It's your responsibility. And then if not, we can try to make a better choice. Of course, in the, America is kind of losing that part now. We've begun to blame uh, the president, and I, I actually blame voters, you know. Uh, but the same thing, but in China or other more authoritarian societies, when people have no choice and... Uh, they always uh, try to overthrow the government. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's why the government is always worried about their people. You know, that's uh, the same thing with the parents. You know, if you impose upon children, you force them to do what you want them to do, uh, they accept no responsibility. 
you actually deprive them. Uh, and so uh, you can't hold them accountable. And uh, so in, in essence, that's why in the end, I think many Asians' education, especially in China, you say children did whatever their adults' parents told them to do. And then when they graduate, they do not have a successful life. Now they come back to blame parents. So you told me all the time, well, I should do this. I've done this. So now what? You know, that's the kind of thing. <laughs> it's, uh, so you, had, you know, in, in school, so you hold accountable only when they have a choice. And once they make a choice, they're accountable. For example, the same thing you take your... Your kids out, you can only five, have five daughters, children want to, you can say, okay, you can buy a Big Mac to fatten yourself, or you can buy something healthy to eat, or you can donate the money. But once you, you do that, that's it. You only have five bucks. It's the same thing with children. If they don't go to school, if they choose to go to school, they, they, uh, they should be coming to wake up, ask you, take them to school, right? And you shouldn't be forced you shouldn't be go. wake up, hey, come on, we got to go to school now, you know. <laughs> and remember, children, once they go to school, they want to go to school. And so that's the kind of whole, they're accountable for their own life. Like homework, I think the same thing. I call that a social responsibility. And you may not, like, I, I don't think a lot of homework, honestly, from school is very valuable. But, you know, I tell my children, I tell myself, you go to school, you went to a class, and that's your social responsibility. If you don't want to do the homework, you should have argued and bargaining with your teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not, if you're getting bad grades uh, for not turning your homework, and you, you get embarrassed, you get bad grades. So that's the kind of things I never would uh, hover over my kids, you know, a shoulder to say, hey, you got to do homework. You can remind them that's social responsibility. But, you know, just every day you say, okay, come, we sit here with your kids and for five hours, you got to finish homework. If you don't, you have to do something else. Then kids will expect you always be there. They will never learn to take responsibility. You have to be there all the time for them. So if we had, for instance, a tiger mom listening to the podcast and she's starting to wonder, is this what I should do? What are some practical steps you might encourage her to take to shift this way of thinking or this way of interacting with her kids? Well, I think, you know, it's really like what I call you build a, a democracy. I, what I suggest is really no guarantee that anyone can succeed. And it's so like I think Winston Churchill says, democracy may be the worst form of government except all others that have been tried. You know, <laughs> So I think what I have suggested is not necessarily kind of effective for everybody, every kind of situation. But I can tell you, sure, it's definitely better than the Tiger Mom approach. And so the steps, I think you, you start with the smaller steps and gradually relinquish your control over tasks. And for example, if you have a kindergartner, first grader, I'm serious. You can get started by you send them to school and just by doing, don't cook them breakfast and don't go wake them up. If they miss a couple <laughs> of days in kindergarten and if they get late, they get embarrassed. That's consequence. That's enough. For them to learn, I better go wake up my mom or my dad, ask them to drive there. Honestly, you know, missing a few hours, a couple of days in kindergarten is not going to have a large impact in life in the long run, but might teach your children some good lessons. It's the same thing, I think, works in the homework. We know we want to teach our children to be entrepreneurial, uh, to be creative, and uh, resilience is part of them. Learn to fail is very important to know. But however, I know a lot of our parents call teachers, school make sure their children are perfect from kindergarten on, getting all A students from, for 12 years. I, I wouldn't. I would let them fail as early as possible. Really. So that's a great opportunity for them, you know, and to watch them playing video games deep into night. They cannot wake up next day. And then be, that's the time to say, see, I told you, you know, if you did that, this would happen. <laughs> you know, I can tell you, that's the kind of things that I think you, you would do. Also, ask your children to 
So, so how would they like to be parented? Maybe buy them a book about good parenting. So work with your children, a plan. You know, make this whole parenting a democratic process. I would not say this is not a laissez-faire, you know, parenting style. It's more of a democratic process of parenting. So we're running down toward the end of the podcast. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but we always have uh, two questions that we like to ask, and you have a lot of experience answering these questions, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this. The first one is we live in a digital age. I mean, it's impossible now to go back. We have opened the box, and now our kids have smartphones and tablets, and this digital age is out there. They can go to Wikipedia. They can look on Google. They can go to YouTube and learn all kinds of things. In this digital environment, what does it mean to be, quote, educated? What does educated mean now? Well, I think, you know, educated now meaning that you're not a storage of knowledge anymore. Being called an encyclopedia of miscellaneous facts and information is definitely different. I think when I was growing up, or most of part of human history, if you know a lot of stuff, that means educated. You know, people, if you memorize things, you know, I, I mean, before, if you memorize historic facts, it's important and those things. And because you don't have to carry them with you. Today, it's not. It's your ability to use information. But more important is your ability to create a new ideas, new products, new concepts, new pathways. Just come up with something new is very important. So that's what I call creativity is very important. But creativity is just not being randomly creative. You have to have a lot of knowledge and discipline. But again, those very domain specific. So being able to use the information, combine the information, and come up with new things and support that. And also to be educated someone who is uh, very masterful with assembling learning or knowledge ecosystem of their own, being able to use technology, use people to connect, to learn from each other, and uh, have a global network of people. So like, like you, you do, Steve, and you're very entrepreneurial in your, your way of working. You find someone, you work with them, and that's how we do. Our children need to learn to expand, to be socially intelligent. So we use technology to connect, to access the experts, access information, as if they were entrepreneurial. You, know, you, you try to find someone to help you with your weaknesses. And I think the last one is that we just hope when children are become globally connected, competent. They are not working in a local community anymore. They need to open their eyes. Their workplace or work colleagues might be in Africa, might be in Asia. So that global competency would be something very, very important. So with that, actually, another question occurred to me, and I don't normally ask this question, but is there still a place then, because we have so much knowledge available to us, is there still a place for memorizing and putting certain types or amounts of knowledge in for the quick RAM access? I think that's a very, actually, a trick question requires a very tricky answer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Because people often misunderstand this, my way of expressing. People say, oh, you don't need knowledge. Of course you need knowledge. What I would say, basic knowledge or skills should be sought after not imposed upon. Basically meaning that if children are creative or want to be creative, want to be great in a certain domain, they will pursue that knowledge. So I think here that's project-based learning comes in. If you engage children in making something and that information is necessary, and they will have to do it. You know, so so if children, for example, they want to play a video game, you know, but the, all the instruction of video games in Japanese, well, they better learn Japanese to deal with that, or, or find someone translate that into English <laughs> for them to do it. So, 
if you go to IKEA, you buy some furniture. I know many people may attempt to assemble this thing, but without reading. But eventually, you you give up. You want to read. But if you cannot read, assemble your toy or something. Well, you better learn how to read. You know, that's the kind of things I want to say. Knowledge is important, but it's not supposed to be uniformly imposed upon every child at the same time. I like that. I like that. I I'm actually writing that down so that I remember that. I have thought about this back and forth because you know we get lots of answers to that question about、mm-hmm. what the digital age means. You know, and some people think the digital age causes laziness, and other people think the digital age helps us create many many new opportunities. And the truth is,、mm-hmm. they're probably both right in different ways、right. for different reasons. And it does come back to this idea of letting the child choose. I think the knowledge that needs to go in and be used in that way, and the basic、mm-hmm. skills. So. Excellent. Thank you so much. The last question that we like to ask is actually a question that I have actually heard you talk a little bit about, and so it's okay if you give the same answer. It's also okay if you expand、mm-hmm. on that answer. And that question is, what is the purpose of an education? Well, I think you know there are many people who argue about this, but I think the highest goal of education is to really liberate individuals, to to give people the, the capacity, the power. To become better selves, so they become better members. If they can better themselves, so, but they also is gaining a kind of independence. You know, I, you probably have heard me talk about a good education keeps other people's children out of their basement. That's a lot, actually. To have an independent child who does not live in your basement, it's very, it's huge success. You know, they have to be financially independent. That means they have to have skills and knowledge that's desired by others, and convince others people might desire their skills and knowledge. And also, they have to be psychologically independent. That means、uh, the psychologically healthy, they can manage their own mental issues, you know, emotions, handle stress, and、uh, that's another big problem we have now. You know, we have a lot of people. Distressed people, anxious people, or honestly mentally disabled people, mentally unstable people, and finally they have to be socially independent. That means they can become at least a member, an accepted member of certain communities, societies. So that's something I think I would say very simple. But I don't think education it should be there for nation building. We're not building workers to build the Chinese Great Wall for the emperor. You know, we're not building it for the Soviet economy. I think right now we have that wrong. Many people blame our economy on education. I think if you have successful, responsible individuals for themselves, and、uh, honestly, that will be probably create a better society. If everyone is responsible for their own behavior and they understand, they have to negotiate, compromise in the society. That's pretty、uh, amazing. Well, I think we'll wrap it right there, and I'll ask you to stay on for a few minutes afterwards. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak to with our audience. What's the best way for our audience to connect with you to ask questions or continue the conversation? One thing I would suggest,、uh, Steve, the best way for them is to get on my website. And I write blogs infrequently. I don't. I'm not really like. I, only when I have something right, they can read a lot of my writing there, my views, or they can read my books. But best on you know, my website is called zhaolearning.com. It's、uh, z-h-a-o-learning.com, and or they can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at uh, yongzhao uo. That's、uh, Twitter.、Uh, or if they have、uh, after. Dealing with those things, feel free to email me, and、uh, they can read a couple of books I've、uh, I've written, and that、uh, they can, you know, they can get a sense of what I do and、uh, my ideas. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here on the podcast, share it with a friend. Great ideas demand to be shared. You can also help fellow parents and educators by subscribing to the Tabletop Inventing podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. 
If you use Android, subscribe, leave us a rating, and write a review in Stitcher. Links to subscribe can be found at www.ttinvent.com podcast. Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Mm -hmm.